Well, take your scriptures and find your way to Psalm chapter 53. We're going to work our way through two psalms this morning, chapter 53 and 54. We're going to go in that order, starting with Psalm 53 and then to Psalm 54. Something interesting about Psalm 53 is that it's nearly identical to Psalm 14. You feel free to page back and find Psalm 14 and flip back and forth and compare. You're going to notice that Psalm 53 is nearly a word-for-word replication of Psalm 14. There are some differences, but those differences are minor. It's almost as if, remember, we think of Psalms as being an Old Testament book of songs. And it's almost as if David remastered a song that he wrote previously later in life, returning to those themes of Psalm 14. So I think it's safe to say that God believes that we need the truth that is found in Psalm 53 or Psalm 14 because it's repeated there for us in the Psalter. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are psalms that are all about folly in the biblical sense of the word. I don't know what comes to mind. If you had to write a dictionary definition, aren't you glad you don't? But if you did have to write a dictionary definition of the word fool or of the word folly, the term folly, what words would you use to describe foolishness or folly? Whatever might have just come to mind, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 that came before it reveal the core of what God considers to be foolishness. And in Psalm 53, if you notice the opening lines there, it's all about the foolishness of living in disregard toward God. Psalm 53 is a warning about and an indictment of the foolishness of living in disregard toward God. Psalm 54, then, in the historical context, you notice in the title lines just before Psalm 54, it's attributed to an occasion in David's life when, quote, the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? This is an occasion when David's hiding place, if you have any um, familiarity with the life of David, there was a period of time when David was anointed to be king of Israel, and the current king of Israel was threatened by that and was hunting David down. David turned into a fugitive and outcast, being hunted by King Saul. He was hiding for his life. And his position was given away in a treacherous betrayal. And Psalm 54 is attributed to a time when that happened, where where David writes out a prayer that begs God for help and concludes with a quiet triumph of confidence in God's goodness. The stories surrounding these psalms can be found in 1 Samuel 21 through 26. And we don't have a clear fixture of what prompted the writing of Psalm 53. So I'm going to do a little bit of conjecture here. Which, okay, there, There's various theories on what might have been happening in David's life that prompted Psalm 53. There's no clear confidence in what it might be, so there's a couple of options. I think one of the options is drawn from 1 Samuel chapters 21 through 26. If we look at the chronology of what's happening in the Psalms before this, and then look at the story that happened for Psalm 54, in, in 1 Samuel, in that section of chapters 21 to 26, David has a run-in with a guy named Nabal. The word Nabal shows up in Psalm 53 because the word that's translated fool is the Hebrew term Nabal. This guy had a, had a name that meant fool. Okay? Must have been a rough childhood for that guy, right? He has that name. So my, what I'd like to believe is that perhaps David's run-in with Nabal, with fool, 
reminded him of the truth that was recorded in Psalm 14. And it's as if, I wonder if David is pulling back that, is drawing back from that truth from Psalm 14 and rehearsing these truths, meditating again on those truths about the fool having just had a run-in with Nabal. So today we're going to look at those, these two psalms. Psalm 53 is a warning against folly, and Psalm 54 is an invitation to live wisely. In Psalm 53, we are warned of the folly of living unaware of God's abiding presence, of God's reality. In Psalm 54, we are shown the wisdom of living in the awareness of God. And so the big idea of putting these, putting these two psalms together then, the big idea that we can come away with is this. It's been put like this. If you do not trust God, you have everything to fear. If you do trust God, you have nothing to fear. Psalm 53, if you do not trust God, you have everything to fear. Psalm 54, if you do trust God, you have nothing to fear. These two psalms go together. So let's take a look in Psalm 53 and then we'll move our way into Psalm 54. Psalm 53 opens with descriptions of wicked people. And we could spend quite a while just unpacking the doctrine that's found here in Psalm 53. If you would like to look at a New Testament counterpart to Psalm 53 about the doctrine of sinfulness, of corruption in humankind, you can turn to Romans. Just a few opening parts of Romans. The Apostle Paul I think, is unpacking the truth that is found in Psalm 53 and other places in Scripture. It's what is called the Christian doctrine of human depravity, that people are born sinners. That's why we sin. We are born with a nature that is opposed to God. And some of that nature shows up in different ways. It doesn't mean everybody goes out and becomes mass murderers or serial killers. But it means that the heart of sin is within us all. This opposition toward God is within all of us. And it manifests in different ways, but the heart is all the same. We share in the same universal human condition of depravity. That's what Psalm, that's what Psalm 53 is unpacking. We're not going to unpack all the complexities of that this morning. We've done that in other sermons. We did that in Psalm 14. But Psalm 53 describes wicked people, and we know they are wicked because of the descriptions given to their actions. Notice it says that they are corrupt. They do abominable iniquity. They are not doing any good. Verse 2, God is looking down, seeking for anybody who realizes what's happening. Verse 3, they've all fallen away. All of us are corrupt. None of us do good, not even one. That is God's summary statement on all of humankind on their own. But notice that there is a reason given for why humankind is engaged in wicked actions. Our wicked actions betray something that's going on within us, and that's what's focused on in verse 1. Something is happening in us before our actions. There is this worldview that lies within our hearts, this inner motivation lying behind our actions, and this inner motivation, this inner belief statement, this worldview statement is in verse 1, there is no God. That's what a fool is biblically. There is this inner heart, this inner counsel of their conscience that is living as if there is no God. This idea of heart, again, the scripture is not talking about the, the physical organ pumping blood through your body. It's descriptive of this inner counsel of a person's soul where they think in their conscience, this idea of 
the kind of the command center of your whole being, not just the, the, the brains, the neurons that are firing in a biological way, but this soul sense of who you are as a person and the inner motivations of what you do. This is why the Bible warns us to keep our hearts with all diligence because the issues of our life, our life flows out of our hearts. It's another way to say it is people don't live out of their heads. They live out of their hearts. That's why we do stupid things sometimes, right? And so what Psalm 53 is saying is that the fool's heart is living with this mantra, there is no God. Now, does this mean that fools are atheists? Open atheists? Closet atheists? How does this describe this? You're saying, why in the world are you preaching this passage in a church? Do you think any of us are atheists? I don't think that's likely. But one commentator said it like this in Psalm 53. The fool cannot satisfy himself that there is no God, but he wishes there were none. He pleases himself with the notion that it is, imp- that it is possible there may be no God, He cannot be sure there is one God, and therefore he is willing to think there is no God. I know that was a mouthful, but it reminds us of how Paul describes fools in Romans when he says that we did not see fit to acknowledge God, and therefore you see this tumbling effect of wicked corruption cascading through humankind. The obvious reality of God is inescapable, according to Romans. There is an inescapable reality that every person must turn away from to deny the existence of God. It's written into our consciences. And God reveals himself to humankind by writing his existence in the handiwork of the universe around us. So this definition of folly means that it might disagree with what is in dictionaries. This biblical definition of foolishness also means that very smart people can be fools. People with lots of degrees can be fools. People with published journals can be fools. The fool might or might not make a verbal denial of God's existence, but a fool lives with an effective denial of God's existence. And that is where I think Psalm 53 starts to turn in to examine our hearts. The fool is someone who makes a visible denial of God, even if they won't make a verbal denial of God. The fool is one who thinks in his heart there is no God. There are occasions where you read through the the story of ancient Israel, a whole nation established on the existence of Jehovah God. So they're in this nation that are God worshipers, so to speak, right? And they lived effectively with visible denial that God existed. They would worship other gods. They might have external admission of God in in some sort of ritual or or religion exercise like that, but their hearts, they lived as if God didn't exist. Who then are the fools? Is it us or is it them? Well, it's us in as much as we live without a conscious awareness of God's existence. It's us as much as we live with an effective denial of God's existence. So I think what we'll appreciate in, in, in the application of Psalm 53 in regards to foolishness in relationship to how much are we aware of or do we order our lives around the existence of God is by looking at the story of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25 and 26. I'm going to do a quick summary of what happens here. David and his men are wandering fugitives. They are trying to scrape by a living. They're just trying to to make it, right? They're not part of a formal army, so they have no general wages. 
And it happens that David's men came across the shepherds of a guy named Nabal. David's men provided protection for these shepherds as they were shearing their flocks. And again, some of the agricultural terms here don't make sense to us or the, or the cultural conditions going on at the time don't make sense to our modern ears. But shepherds shearing sheep in the wilderness would have been at great risk. They would have been vulnerable to attacks. They would have been vulnerable to attacks of evil people or, or predators. And David's men, their presence, protected Nabal's shepherds so they could carry out their work and not be troubled and not have anything stolen, not be raided at all. He did Nabal a great service. He sends a messenger to Nabal reporting about the service that they did, reporting the effects and the results of that, and he asked Nabal for a donation to him and his men for the services that they've rendered. Nabal is incensed with the idea that David would have the audacity to ask anything from him. And he did a flat refusal. I don't know who David is. I don't know why you're after my stuff. No, is basically what Nabal said. Nabal being a fool. David hears the report of this messenger. And David says, boys, strap on your swords. We're going to go raid. We protected Nabal from raids. He didn't appreciate us. So now we're going to tell him. Now we're going to show him. I'm putting words in David's mouth. But he's, he says, strap on your swords. They do and they ride out to, take, uh, to, to raid Nabal's um, Nabal's household. 400 men, it says in the account, strapped on swords and are, and are riding to teach Nabal a lesson. Abigail, Nabal's wife, learns what's happening here. She loads up a caravan of supplies and intercepts David while he's en route to teach Nabal a lesson. She apologizes for Nabal's boorish behavior. She says, Nabal is like what his name is. He's a fool. He behaves like a fool. His name says he's a fool. She apologizes and then she pleads for David not to intervene and not to shed blood. She appeals to David saying that her intervention is actually God restraining David from what she called blood guilt, from what is described as from saving with his own hand. She goes on to assure David that Jehovah God is certainly able to establish his household. David should not do the evil of bloodshed for a personal vendetta and she urges David to trust in the care of Jehovah God. So ultimately, she persuades David to avoid working salvation with his own hand by his own sword for a personal vendetta, being guilty of bloodshed, and he, re, he turns away from his, uh, from, his, uh, from his original plan. Tying the story back to Psalm 53, say, well, how does this explain it all? We were asking, who are the fools? I believe that if David had gone forward with his plan to teach Nabal a lesson by killing what Abigail called blood guilt, bloodshed, David would have been a fool. David in that moment was so full of rage at how he had been treated. He had forgotten God. He had forgotten God's promise. He had forgotten God's rule and reign over his life, even his circumstance. He was going to make this, he was going to undo this injustice that he had felt. He was headed in with his sword, 400 men with swords strapped on, and Abigail was God's gracious intervention to keep David from being a fool, from living as if there is no God. Abigail reminded David, there is a God. You can trust him. He's promised you. You can be assured of his care. Don't do this. Keep a clear conscience. And I think that when David, I wonder when David wrote this, that he was rehearsing from Psalm 14, reminding the fool is somebody who lives as if there is no God. And in that moment, I wonder if David had forgotten of God's rule and reign and his confidence in God's rule and reign. And of course, Nabal was the fool for sure. 
Nabal lived as if there was no God. We might hear of David's request for supplies and think, well, that sounds very kind of welfare state-like. I mean, who is David to say, Nabal, give me your wealth after what I've done? Isn't that kind of like somebody in a country where you're at a stoplight and they jump out and they wash your window and they say, now pay up. And you're like, I didn't even ask you to wash my window. Go away. Isn't that kind of what's happening here? It's not. Because Israel's treatment of the poor wasn't just a humanitarian issue or a social issue. It was an issue of worship and obedience toward God. There were actually laws written into ancient Israel's code of law under God's order of how to protect and provide for the oppressed and the downtrodden, for the outcasts. Farmers had specific rules they had to abide by and how carefully they gleaned their fields, not to overglean their fields to make sure there was leftovers for the outcasts, the downtrodden, for the poor. Nabal's flat refusal to live and abide by that was a flat refusal to, to acknowledge God. And so Nabal defying that was him living as a fool. Verses 4 and 5 are really the heart of Psalm 53 when David is asking the question, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? In other words, don't these people know any better? Isn't that what we say about a fool? You hear about somebody does something stupid and you're thinking, doesn't they know better? If you want a sadly humorous exercise, just look up some of the Darwin Awards that have been given out. If you're not familiar with what Darwin Awards are, it's people who do stupid things that ends up killing them. And it's like, didn't they realize that something terrible would have happened if they had done this? Like the guy who strapped down a rocket onto a car, didn't he realize this wasn't going to end well? And that's what David is asking in verse 4. Don't they realize, don't these fools know better? And of course they don't. And then in verse 5, he talks about this great terror where there is no terror. This verse is why some scholars think that this might have been a reference to some later event in Israel's history where an army was rooted, was overrun by God's presence who gave them a sense of terror that they were at risk and they fled. They hadn't even been attacked. But I think what David is getting at is that fools live as if there is no God, effectively denying God's existence. But in their hearts... There is this inescapable, haunting reality that there is a God who will hold them accountable. It's inescapable. There's this inner terror in their hearts. Even though they might just try to distract themselves through, uh, through life or through wealth or pursuits of pleasure or experiences, there's this inescapable, haunting reality that there is a God to whom they will be accountable in that final day of days. And what they do is they run, even though there is nobody chasing them. David ends this rehearsal in Psalm 53 with a reminder, with a forward-looking plea of faith-filled hope in God's salvation. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. It's possible that verse 6 was added later in Israel history, maybe when they were in exile. It's possible. But even so, David, the author here attributed to David, he realizes that his only hope is God. Our only hope is God providing a Savior, which again, tying back to the story in 1 Samuel, maybe with the story of Nabal, David had forgotten that David's ultimate Savior was not his hand holding his sword with 400 men, but his ultimate Savior was God fulfilling his word of promise. And the same is true for us. And when that happens, when God saves, then we can be like Jacob in Israel. We can rejoice and be glad. 
Which, by the way, Psalm 53 shows us the goodness of God by reminding us of the gospel of God. Psalm 53 reminds us of the gospel because the gospel is the good news of God restoring those who have been fools, those who have rejected God by restoring us back into relationship with himself. And here's how God did this. God gave himself to be made, quote-unquote, made a fool to save us from the foolishness of living as if God does not exist. The Bible tells us that when we are united to Jesus by faith, when we rely on him for salvation, a great exchange takes place. Jesus gets our sin, he dies for your sin, and you get Jesus' righteousness, and you get to live because of his righteousness. So a fool, biblically, would be somebody who says, no, there is no God, which means this. A fool is somebody who says no to Jesus. Jesus is God giving himself to us. So the question this morning is, are you a fool biblically? Have you said no to Christ? Have you said no to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Is your plan for your life what you are living by? Are you living in accordance to your efforts of self-salvation, whether that's through high religious pursuits or whether it's through abandonment to personal pursuits, just kind of self-discovery and being irreligious. Either way, you are trying to save yourself. The Bible says you're a fool. And Psalm 53 invites you to enjoy and embrace the wisdom of God in Jesus, who was treated as a fool to save you from foolishness, who was rejected so you would never be rejected ultimately by God. Of course, for Christians, we would ask the question, are there areas of our life where we are living foolishly in this, in this way? Are there areas of our life where we are not ordering our life around the existence of God? We can try it out in different areas of our life. Financially, are you willing to worship God on Sunday, but then to the rest of the week, live as if God does not exist in your finances or in your job? or in your relationships? Does God exist in your parenting? You can continue to run through the spheres of life. And it's a helpful exercise for us as Christians not to think of ourselves wiser than we really are when there may be areas where we have said, God, you stay out of those areas. These areas, okay, but not those other areas. The fool is somebody who says in their heart, there is no God. I'm reminded of these past few psalms to be encouraged as we move into Psalm 54 because in the, the series of psalms that we've been doing together, David has had a rough life. As we get to Psalm 54, we read the opening lines and David is writing this. It's attributed to another difficult time in his life when his position was given away. He has to run again as a fugitive. But it's not just Psalm 54. I mean, do you remember back in Psalm 51? We were reading... David's anguished cries of confession for his sin of adultery and conspiracy to murder. Definitely a low point in David's life. In Psalm 52, we hear his anguished cry to God about the horrific injustice that had happened when Doeg slaughtered 85 priests and then went into, Na- went into the city of Nob and killed everyone there, including livestock. Definitely another anguished period in his life. Psalm 53, we hear the meditation on fools who live as if there is no God. I think David probably feeling gratitude for God, keeping him from being a fool, but also the angst of being surrounded in a world full of people who reject God's rule. 
Now in Psalm 54, here David is again on the run, begging for God's help. I remind us of these events in David's life, not for you to, not, not in a kind of a passive-aggressive way of saying, hey folks, your life could be worse. You know, David had a really bad life. Is your life really that bad? That's not what's happening here. God doesn't give us his word for our comparison. What we learn here from this series of Psalms and the snapshots into David's life is we're encouraged to remember that David lived a life that had lots of difficulties. Some of those difficulties were a result of his own doing. His own, he's responsible for, for, what he, for some of the difficulties that entered into his life. But many of those difficulties were not directly his responsibility. He was being the victim of others' harsh treatment, others' vindictive treachery and betrayal. And isn't the same true for us? Our lives are difficult in many ways, many of it because of our own failings, our own foolishness, but sometimes because of others around us, things in the world just not going the way that they should. And we find ourselves in hardship after hardship, story after story of difficulty, of trials. Friends, when we read through Psalms, we hear a man living the same kind of life, the same kind of heart anguish. And I want to encourage us that the series of Psalms that we've been going through not one psalm has everything we need, but when you put them all together, we start to see a snapshot of ordinary Christian living, a life full of confession and repentance, anguished cries to God, trusting Him with injustices that we cannot right, times when we have to confess our own failings and times when we have to trust God with the sting and the pain of others who fail us. That's normal Christianity. That's normal Christian life. So in Psalm 54, what we come to find is, Psalm 53 was telling us, if you will not trust God, you have everything to fear. Psalm 54, if you do trust God, you have nothing to fear. That's what we find in Psalm 54. It opens with the words, Oh God, save me. That really is one of the best prayers anybody could pray. And I hope we never tire of praying that. Oh God, save me. Some of you are praying that regularly or you're praying that for somebody that you know closely, dearly in your family, maybe a friend or a coworker. Psalm 53 and Psalm 54, I believe, are connected. They're put in this order for a reason. Okay? It's not just kind of the, the people putting together the Bible, put all the Psalms in a bucket, shook them up and started pulling them out in order and that's the way it was. There was a, there was a, a providential order in how these were put together. And I believe that Psalm 54 stands on the shoulders of Psalm 53 inasmuch as this. You cannot pray Psalm 54 if you are the fool of Psalm 53. You cannot do that. And it's obvious, right? You're never going to say, Oh God, save me, if you're the fool of Psalm 53. There is no God. So I want us to be sure that we understand that the rich encouragement of Psalm 54 requires that you are somebody who is not a fool. So I don't want anybody to think here that you can live irreligiously, you can defy God in your life, maybe not verbally, but effectively through your life and think that you can still just kind of be, oh God, save me. You say, well, hang on, doesn't God, didn't we just memorize Romans 10, 13, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes, that is true. So Psalm 54 is still an invitation to turn away from the foolishness of denying God and enjoy his forgiveness, enjoy his comfort. But friends, if you defy God, you cannot say, well, I'm just going to kind of use God as my easy button in life, my panic button. When things get really bad, then I'm just going to panic God. God wants so much more with you. His relationship with you is so much fuller, and that's what we see in Psalm 54. 
The reason for the prayer that we're told is because his position was betrayed. He had to break camp. He had to run again, find a new place to hide. And the central problem that David is finding in chapter 54 is found in verse 3 when he says this, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. Why are they doing this? He tells us in verse 3, They do not set God before themselves. That, I believe, is a hearken back to chapter 53. The fool are people that say there's no God. David in verse 54, chapter 54, is writing about angst, about being chased by fools, people who don't put God in order their life around God. They disregard God. David is not like that, and so what David does is he tries out for help to the one true God. There's a richness afforded to us in our relationship with God. God is, okay, whatever your experience of Christianity is, this is not what true Christianity is. Christianity is not people believing in some general impersonal force of God out there. Not some force that we channel and kind of direct our minds to occasionally. This impersonal, ethereal, transcendent force that we occasionally try to harness. That is not, that is not Christianity. We have been given in Christianity through the Holy Scriptures a God who is personal. He has a name, Jehovah He has a name, Jesus. He did real actions of love and service for us. He gave his life for us. And that's the relationship that David has in Psalm 54, a personal relationship. God is his helper. In fact, God is more than that. You see in the beginning lines, he says that God is the one who, who in verse 4, God is his helper, but God is more. He's the upholder of his life. David confesses that his entire existence is because of God's kindness and mercy and compassion. So what David does, even though he is surrounded by the treachery and the betrayal, what he does is he asks God for help. He says, God is the upholder of my life. And then in verse 6, he says, with a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. When we read verses like that, we might kind of think, well, I don't know what we're supposed to do with that because we don't have a sacrificial system going on here. Thankfully, Christ is the perfect sacrifice. But the terms free will offering describe a mechanism in the Old Testament, ancient Israel's worship system, where somebody could say, I don't have to give this specific kind of sacrifice. The law doesn't require me to do this or this or this, but I still want to show God my gratitude and my awe and admiration, my worship and love of him. Is there something I can do? And the free will offering would be one of those ways. This was something that was given in addition. It was an extra offering gladly given out of thankfulness. And David turns that direction, verse 6. He gives thanks to God. And by the way, this is happening to a man who has just written, God, save me. I'm being hunted again. And this is because treacherous people have betrayed me. And yet, even in the midst of that anguish, he's able to turn to God and say, but God, I'm going to give thanks to you. He gives thanks to God for a reason. You see in verse 6, I will give thanks to your name. Here's, I think, a key to healthy Christianity. So much of modern-day Christianity is just blessing thanks. Like, God, thank you for... Oh, I I want to make sure... We can give thanks for this, okay? So I'm I'm not saying we should not give thanks for for just general health and for a, a fridge with food and cupboards with food and I don't, you know, a car that has gas. and you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't give thanks to God for that. We, we should. That is definitely 
from God's provision. But, for, but, but a lot of popular Christianity stops there. What I mean by this is that when or if those circumstances change, if the cupboard's not full of food or if the car doesn't have gas or if the health isn't there, those, those temporal blessings are taken from us, then we find ourselves struggling with having any reason for joy, any reason for thankfulness. A lot of people's faith starts to crumble when it seems like God isn't giving them what they have earned from God. By the way, the whole book of Job explores that in deep ways. What I want to encourage us with is Psalm 54 gives us an insight into how we can be a thankful people even when the world looks at us and says, you have no reason to give thanks. I've read reports of Christians in Afghanistan who are still praising God with thankful hearts while surrounded by those bleak and in many ways hopeless circumstances. And we kind of, modern American Christians kind of scratch their heads and go, how is that possible? Psalm 54 verse 6 is how that's possible. I will give thanks to your name. Now again, we don't attach such significance to names. But in the Old Testament era, there was a lot of significance. I will give thanks to your name, and then the name is given, O Jehovah, O Yahweh. And in God's name is wrapped up all of who he is. Remember, we've done this numerous times. He revealed himself to Moses with the burning bush. I am, I am. I'm a God of steadfast love, of mercy, of compassion, of righteousness. Everything of what God is is all wrapped up in his name. And I believe David is invoking his mind to meditate on those realities while surrounded by circumstantial failure and betrayal. David finds a way to give thanks for who God is. God's name, verse 6, for it is good. Here's just something for us to consider. Do we know God well enough? Have we enjoyed him deeply enough to where when the world around us is burning down, so to speak, we still have resources to draw on to find thankfulness. Not fake thankfulness, but genuine thankfulness. Have we experienced the goodness of God in those kinds of deep ways? That's what David is drawing from. And he concludes in verse 7, For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You say, well, David, how is David writing such triumphant language? Because he is confident, no matter what Saul might try to do to him, that God's word of promise will be fulfilled. We have a great promise. You say, well, that was nice. David was anointed as a king. He kind of knew it was going to happen. You, didn't, you haven't been anointed for whatever it is that's giving you anguish. Friends, we have something even greater. We have been anointed as God's children to always forever to be part of his family. Any trouble that we can stack up against our lives falls short of the trouble of not knowing God forever. And I want to just encourage us as a church family to be people who celebrate the goodness of God to us in Jesus Christ. That is where I believe Psalm 54 wants us to run. We can look on triumph on our enemies, Christians being persecuted in our world who are giving their blood for, for their faith in Jesus, who that's happening now. They can, they can look in triumph on their enemies while their enemies take their life because God has delivered them from their ultimate trouble. How do we tie all this together? Well, here's some questions. Do we live our life largely without an awareness of God? Psalm 53 warns us of the foolishness of that. I'd like to encourage our youth, our young adults, our teenagers. Do you live your life in largely disregard, large disregard of God? Is God just kind of your parents' thing? 
Is this for old people? You'll figure. You'll get into that later. Kind of when you get later on in life. But right now, you're just kind of living the living your life. You just want to enjoy life and not let God get in the way, friends. If that is you, you are a fool. I want to encourage the youth of our church to take seriously the warnings of Psalm 53 and the encouragement of Psalm 54. Know God to be the one who saves you. For the rest of us, are we trusting God with our career, with our parenting, with our finances, with our recreation and leisure? If you do not trust God, you have everything to fear. But if you do trust God, you have nothing to fear. This is the truth for us from Psalm 53 and 54.